Good afternoon. You are listening to the podcast of the Budapest City Archives in cooperation with the Central European Universities Podcast Library. Good evening. My name is Hedvig Turai. I am a Hungarian art historian. I am a member in an advisory panel for a memorial project here in Budapest, Hungary. The aim of this project is to remember those women who were victims of wartime sexual violence, rape, The interview conducted tonight is already part of this project. So I am happy and honored that you accepted our interview request, and thank you for that. Michael Rudberg is is the 1939th Society Samuel Guest Chair in Holocaust Studies and Professor of English and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles. He has major contributions to Holocaust, trauma, and memory studies, He is the author of the book Traumatic Realism, Multidirectional Memory. This has just been translated into German as well and published in German language as well. And his latest work is The Implicated Subject, Beyond Victims and Perpetrators. Thanks. Well, first of all, just thank you for inviting me to be uh, part of this uh, conversation and part of this project, which I think is a really important project um, and a really difficult one. The starting point of your latest book, Uh, victims uh, beyond the implicated subject is that there is a lack of necessary vocabulary. So the perpetrator victim bystander triangle is uh, no longer enough to uh, or adequate to address all the complicated questions of responsibility and interactions and how how different subjects take uh, take a place in this power system or power network. So You introduced these new concepts with memory studies, and just I just really would like to kind of support the the fact that this is very much relevant to our project in in the in this uh, which is about the wartime rape of of women. So dealing with the memory of wartime uh, violence against women should necessarily be transnational, which is one of your your key focus in in your work, and. This is a wartime rape is a transnational phenomenon, and uh, we cannot discuss uh, solely within national frames. So gender, nation, and violence interlock in rape. I find implicated subject a very rich concept, and uh, this is uh, in connection also with uh, questions how to remember and feel responsible for, as you quote Hannah Arendt, things that we have not done when it comes to the Holocaust in the first place in case of Hannah Arendt, but also with the legacy of socialism and uh, post-socialist countries like Hungary and in our specific project. So my first question would be to, to speak a little bit more about the concept of the implicated subject which which is kind of a paradigm shift in the vocabulary of of holocaust studies and also your your scholarly and personal road that led to this new concept so i'm i'm glad to be here to, and having a chance to talk to you and you've already introduced i think a lot of the important ideas um that we'll want to maybe discuss more 
But yeah, for me, this the concept of the implicated subject came out of work that I was doing earlier on what I call multidirectional memory, and we can talk more about that later. The idea was uh, that I was interested in really how uh, histories that are often uh, seen as separate from each other uh, come together in uh, practices of remembrance, how different histories are, are linked together transnationally often, as you say. Um, and when I wrote that book, I was mostly interested in the way that different experiences of victimization um, provided possibilities for transnational solidarity, for connections across uh, different groups and across different histories. But after I finished the book, I started to become interested in the other ways that uh, histories intersect. In other words, that they don't always connect via the position of the victim, but can also uh, come through connections between perpetrators, for example. Or this other uh, subject position that I started to become interested in, eventually called the implicated subject, they came in, in some ways out of thinking about the work of um, W.G. Zabal, the, the German novelist, in fact, who uh, writes these very transnational histories of the Holocaust, which are linked with colonialism and modernity more generally. Um, but he does that not from the position of the victim, but precisely as a second-generation German reflecting back on this history. So in other words, what I came to think of as the position of the implicated subject, someone not a perpetrator, but still somehow um, inheriting uh, a certain kind of responsibility. So it came partly out of this notion of implication and implicated subject came partly out of my scholarly work, but it was also very much a personal question for me. And it allowed me to explore issues that I had begun thinking about really decades before as a young man just out of college, thinking about what it meant to be a white Jewish American um, in relationship to the founding crimes, we could call them, of the United States. In other words, genocide of indigenous people, uh, enslavement of, of Africans. And... Um, Obviously, as someone born late in the 20th century, uh, I was not guilty of those crimes. I was not around for them. My family wasn't even around for them. My family immigrated to the United States uh, many years after slavery was ended, many years after the initial encounter between Europeans and indigenous people in the Americas. So I, I knew I was not guilty, but I knew I bore some sort of responsibility. And I remember having arguments with other uh, young people in similar, with similar backgrounds, Jewish immigrant families, where they would say, this has nothing to do with me. What, you know, I wasn't here. My family wasn't here. We just immigrated. What do I have to do with this history? And uh, I knew that that was the wrong perspective, but I didn't feel I really had the vocabulary to address it. I didn't really have the concepts. I didn't really have the arguments um, that I needed. And it was really only many years later when I came back to this question and discovered, first of all, the work of Karl Jaspers, the German philosopher, who wrote a very important book um, directly in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the defeat of uh, National Socialism called uh, The Question of German Guilt, Die Schuldfrage. And Jaspers in this book was trying to convince his uh, fellow Germans in the aftermath of the Nazi period that if certainly they were not all collectively guilty for what just had happened, they certainly bore some sort of responsibility, uh, some sort of collective even responsibility. 
And he made a distinction in that book between four forms of what he called guilt. Um, criminal guilt on the one hand, political guilt, moral guilt, um, and metaphysical guilt. And criminal guilt is, is, is in some ways the clearest one, and that's the most familiar one. If you've committed a crime, if you were a perpetrator of a crime, you are potentially, at least, criminally guilty. But he said, this is not the only thing that's important. By virtue of our belonging to a particular community, the German nation, by virtue of our citizenship, we are also politically guilty in his terms, right? By, by vir- just by virtue of our participation in that collective. And that notion of political guilt was very important to me, um, as well, I think, as moral guilt, which is to say that we are responsible for our actions, whether or not they conform to the laws of the time or the mores of the time. There's a kind of moral responsibility that goes beyond that for us as individuals. And those were important for me. What I, what I came to, to think, though, was that his vocabulary was a little bit misleading and that it wasn't really guilt that was at stake in these instances of the political and the moral especially, but really what I would call responsibility. And here I also was inspired by Hannah Arendt, who, whom you've already quoted, and her notion of collective responsibility and of personal responsibility under dictatorship to, uh, to think about two essays that she wrote in the 1960s after she had covered the Eichmann trial. And so it was the combination of, of, of Jasper's first and the distinctions that he made and then uh, the way that Arendt developed these, these ideas and moved us from questions of guilt to questions of responsibility that I found uh, very useful for addressing the questions that interested me. And I felt it was, I felt indeed, as you said at the beginning, that we, that we lacked the uh, vocabulary for addressing these kinds of indirect participation in acts of violence and exploitation. Um, and that there was a need for a new, uh, a new figure, a new concept, that would uh, serve as a kind of umbrella term for a series of forms of what I called implication. And that was what I came to call the implicated subject. The implicated subject is not a perpetrator. It is not someone who is criminally guilty, but it is someone who is politically responsible, someone who has indirectly participated in certain acts of violence or has inherited or benefited from histories of violence. Um, who is implicated, in other words, is folded into, to think about the etymological uh, origins of the word implication, to be folded into histories um, that we participate in without, again, being direct perpetrators of violence. So uh, for me, there are, there are different, for- I came to see that there are different forms of implication, but that it was worth having a kind of umbrella term to, to unite them and to provide a kind of analytical lens for approaching many different histories. And you talked about it as in relationship to Holocaust studies, and it it certainly comes out of my interest and work in Holocaust studies, but I always saw it as much more broadly applicable. And in the book, The Implicated Subject, my examples are indeed uh, coming from many different contexts, post-slavery, United States and Britain, um, a transitional South Africa, leaving apartheid behind, what that transition means, the Israeli-Palestinian question, um, a whole series of different histories that I think are potentially illuminated by these notions of implication and the implicated subject. And one of the uh, first distinctions I make when thinking about implicated subjects, again, people who enable, perpetuate, benefit from, inherit 
uh, histories of violence without being perpetrators. A distinction that between what I called um, synchronic implication and diachronic implication. That is to say that we are both um, implicated in things that are happening right now, right? That we are enabling forms of violence right now and exploitation in the world that we're living in, even though we're sitting in our offices far from the scene of the actual violence. I'm thinking of things like sweatshop labor, the people who are producing the clothes that we are wearing far away under impossible conditions, starvation wages, things like this, wars that are being fought in our name, bombings that occur paid for by the tax dollars that we paid. We are not perpetrators of those things, but we are implicated in them. We are, impl we are implicated subjects, and we're implicated subjects in the present, in unfolding histories. That's what I call synchronic implication. But I think we also inherit uh, difficult and violent histories, and that's what I call diachronic implication, how we're related to things that happened potentially even before we were born, right? So for the classic example, I think, is second, third, fourth generation Germans in relationship to the Holocaust. They're not guilty of the Holocaust. They, they didn't and couldn't have perpetrated it in any way. But by virtue of being a German national, a German citizen, you bear some sort of responsibility for what came before you, um, for what is a defining history for this national identity. So that's one version of what I call uh, diachronic implication. Or again, to go back to my own cases, I decided that I was, I came to see that I was diachronically implicated in the crimes of slavery, in the, in the crimes of, of, uh, of, in, of genocide of indigenous people, that I have uh, inherited in some sense those crimes as an American citizen, as a white American citizen in particular, and that I've benefited from them, right? That the whiteness from which I benefit today, a certain racial identity, um, comes out of that history, a history that I didn't directly participate in, but which is in some sense still alive today, right? And, and, and therefore, in which uh, I find myself implicated, as do, do many others around me. One more, one more uh, concept that I introduced that I think might be Im uh, important to mention now is, is, is the notion of complex implication. So this notion of the implicated subject is not a, it's not an essential identity. It's not a biological identity. It's not ontological in that sense. Um, it's something that comes from our relation to very specific histories and very specific structures. So it shifts in time. We're not fixed in one place and we're not implicated in the same way in all of the histories that we live within. And I think that's very important. It's a subject position and not a pure and essential identity. And what that means is that we are what I call complexly implicated often. In other words, we bear relationship both to histories of victimization and victims and, and histories of perpetration often enough. So for example, as a Jewish person, you know, I certainly have a kind of post-memory, as Mariana Hirsch would call it, of, of the Holocaust, of anti-Semitism, of various kinds of persecution of Jewish people in Europe, in the United States, wherever, um, that coexists with you know, what I've called my implication in the histories of slavery and genocide in the Americas. Both of those things can be true at once. And I think this is true for many people. I think many of us, um, by virtue of our complicated identities, are complexly implicated in a variety of histories. And that it's important to sort those out. 
One does not cancel the other out, um, but it can be a factor in how we respond to them, I think. I think this is very clear for me, for example, in the, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that what you have there is, um, for Jewish Israelis in particular, you have a strong post-memory of the Holocaust. You have people who are uh, either themselves survivors or direct descendants of survivors, and that coexists with a kind of implication in the violence of the present. And it's a complicated situation in part because of these different lines of connection to different histories. So I think being clear about uh, uh, the different ways that we are connected to violence can be you know, analytically illuminating, but I think it can also have real world impact in terms of how we solve different kinds of conflicts and how we respond to different kinds of conflicts. I find very interesting also that in this complex implication, you use intersectional feminism as well. So what are, what are the tools that intersectional feminism gave to your concept? Yeah, this was somewhat unexpected for me, but at a certain point while I was thinking about these issues, I went back and reread uh, the Combahee River Collective Statement. So this is one of the inaugural uh, texts of, of black feminism and of ultimately what would be called intersectional theory. They don't use the word intersectionality. Rather, what they talk about is they were trying to understand their position as black women in the United States. This was written in the late 1970s. Um, an experience that was for them at the intersection both of patriarchal structures and racist structures. And they were trying to theorize that. And the way they talked about it was that, you know, they found themselves at the intersection of interlocking systems of domination. And so the Combahee River Collective Statement is it's a theory of the interlocking systems of domination. In some ways, I think we've come to see that as almost common sense. It, it, it's so clear once they've said it. But at the time, it was really, I think, a revolutionary breakthrough to think about domination and oppression working simultaneously along different intersecting or interla interlocking lines. And that would eventually be, be developed in, in critical race theory and, and other places as, as a theory of intersectionality. Now, so they were interested in, in understanding their own experience as, let's say, multiply dominated subjects, as subjects who were simultaneously being shaped by these different forces of racism and sexism, among other things. Um, but what I realized as I was rereading that is that this very theory of intersectionality, of interlocking systems of domination, necessarily also brings into view the position of what I would call the implicated subject. And you can see that in the Combahee River Collective when they talk, for example, about their relationship as black women to black men on the one hand and to white women on the other hand, right? So in other words, groups of people who share certain forms of oppression with them, black men share the experience of racism with black women, white women share the experience of sexism and, and living under patriarchy uh, with white women. And yet at the same time, black men are at least theoretically, right, also implicated in structures of patriarchy, as white women are also implicated in structures of, uh, uh, of racism. And so these figures of the black man and the white woman um, are, in some ways, figures of people who are complexly implicated in the terms that I was just describing, right, who have lines of connection both to systems of domination and also to experiences of victimization. 
So I thought this was actually a very, you know, for me, this was a really important insight and that, and I found their analysis very clarifying, even though this wasn't precisely what they were setting out to do. They don't really talk about it as, as implication, obviously. Their focus, again, is really on trying to understand their own experience, which makes sense. It was under theorized and not, not, uh, not very much at the center of most people's concerns, especially at that time. Um, but it produced this other insight, which I was able to draw on later. Um, to think about how precisely inter- intersectional systems of domination, interlocking systems of domination, don't just produce victims and aren't just the result of perpetrators, but involve a lot of people in between, right, who are in these positions of implication and complex implication, and who are, I think this is the important point, necessary for those systems to work, right? It's not just about identifying, oh, you're, you're this, you're that. It's how do these systems of domination work, and my theory is, or my, 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 my hunch is, that, that, that implicated subjects are important components of systems of domination and histories of violence. So that those histories and structures are possible not only because there are perpetrators willing to commit horrific acts, but because there are a lot of other people who support them, either consciously or unconsciously, uh, at the same time. This this uh, reminds me somehow that you you re- in, both with the multi multidirectional memory theory and the implicated subject you find a kind of a way out of this kind of black and white comparison, but still comparison is is uh, in one way or other always comes up. So what do you think about historical comparisons, and especially in connection with the Holocaust, which is very very, very kind of uh, a very sensitive thing to, and many people take it as like offending the uniqueness of the Holocaust. Historical comparison, comparison in general has been an ongoing interest of mine. It's still something I, I continue to think about. And I think that it is, uh, it is sort of one of the fundamental features just of the way I approach the world. But I guess what I would say is I think it's a fundamental feature of how all of us approach the world. In other words, I think comparison is inevitable. I think it's simply a fundamental aspect of human cognition that uh, that our brains are wired to uh, to make distinctions, but also to see similarities and patterns and make connections. So I don't think we can ever get out of comparison. And because of that, I think we need to think more about it. And we need to be able to distinguish between different kinds of comparison. I've started to call this comparing comparisons. I think we need to compare comparisons and develop what I've called an ethics of comparison in order to make some of those sorts of distinctions. And of course, you're absolutely right that in the case of the Holocaust, this is particularly sensitive. It has been for a while and it continues to be. And so one of the great uh, comparison controversies, another concept I've been thinking about, was in the 1980s in Germany, uh, what came to be called the Historikerstreit, the historian's debate, um, in which a set of rather conservative German historians were making uh, what many perceived as troubling comparisons between the Holocaust and uh, the Gulag, for example. So Stalinism and Nazism, the Gulag and Auschwitz, and Jürgen Habermas, the uh, the the liberal left uh, philosopher, great great German philosopher of the second half of the 20th century, intervened and um, argued strongly for a uh, you know a notion of the singularity of the Holocaust to counter 
these conservative relativizations of the Holocaust, mostly vis-a-vis uh, uh, the Soviet Union and crimes of Stalin, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Habermas was right to do that. You know, it was absolutely the right position to take against um, that attempt at relativization. But I think what you see when you when you reflect back on it and think about it was it wasn't so much, the problem wasn't so much the very fact of comparison, um, but rather the attempt to relativize German responsibility through the comparison. In other words, I think when we start to compare comparisons and think about an ethics of comparison, what's, what's ultimately key is not simply what is being compared, but how and why it's being compared, right? So again, in the case of the historicist, right, what Habermas was objecting to, I think, ultimately, or the way that I would frame it now, is not simply bringing together Stalinism and Nazism, it was why it was being done. It was how it was being done. It was being done, you know, quite explicitly in order to uh, alleviate Germans of their responsibility, to take away responsibility for the Nazi past. And so to, today, when, uh, when similar controversies erupt in Germany about the comparison of the Holocaust, I think that we find it's a very different context and it has a very different political valence. And now the conservatives who at one point were comparing the Holocaust and relativizing the Holocaust uniqueness are precisely the ones who are defending it very, uh, I would say almost dogmatically in the present. So why has that changed? What is going on? Again, I think it has to do with how and why we compare. Um, and so today I think, um, at least in some of the cases of comparison, what is happening is not so much an attempt to relativize German responsibility, but actually to extend German responsibility and to say, well, Germans, in fact, are not just responsible for the Holocaust. There's also a history of German colonialism that included itself a genocide in Southwest Africa, today's Namibia, that included massacres in other places, that in fact, we need to bring these things into conversation. And that's not a relativizing comparison. That's an, in fact, an, an attempt to expand the realm of responsibility and to think, I would say, relationally and not in, ter- in relativizing terms. So again, it's, it's the context matters and the reason you're making the comparison and the manner in which it's made. So today, I think it's relatively uncontroversial in comparison to the 80s in some instances at least, to, to think about, for example, uh, Stalinism next to, to Nazism, right? It's not impossible to do that anymore. And even to compare the different forms of violence that, were in, that are involved there. The work of someone like Timothy Snyder has done that. And I think that's considered a lot more respectable than the kinds of comparisons that were being made in the 1980s in Germany, right, by these conservative historians. It doesn't mean it's totally uncontroversial. doesn't mean that all comparisons are good. I'm certainly not saying that. But it shows that things have shifted and that it's not just a matter of what's being compared again, but how and why. Well, that was really interesting. Thank you. Uh, As an art historian, another very attractive feature of your work is that you always uh, involve examples from art. So what I, I have two questions in connection with that. What role do you ascribe to art in your work? And the second thing is, what is it that attracts you to art, to use art in your work? So what is it that you find in visual art that you wouldn't find in other fields of, uh, of uh, I don't know, studies or disciplines? 
what would be harder to find in other fields? Hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, I am trained as a literary scholar. Um, so in a sense, I'm, I, I've always been interested in aesthetic questions, broadly speaking, right? Not, not necessarily visual art, but, but literary, the literary arts. Um, and so my thinking does tend to proceed from, you know, from works, what, what I would, from works of art. In other words, I see works of art, literary and otherwise, as, um, as sites, uh, for theorization, as sites of thinking. Um, I don't, in some ways, uh, make uh, huge distinctions between more discursive theoretical texts and more aesthetic, literary, or artistic texts. I see both of them as offering ways of thinking complexly about the world and about history and about questions of violence. So I almost always start from close analysis of uh, you know either of literary works or, or works of visual art, and through them, start to develop, or in dialogue with them, start to, to develop my, uh, my ideas. But I think it's true that there has been, in the last couple of books especially, um, visual art has taken on a greater and greater importance in my work. And I don't entirely have an explanation for why that is so, except that I think it can be a very... I've, I think I've found partly in making public presentations, the more I've kind of presented my eyes and my ideas um, in public, that uh, visual evidence can be very powerful and very immediate. And I think that's part of what it is, and that it's, it's a way of you know, literally making visible some of the questions and problems that concern me. Um, and I think that might have something to do with it, I suppose. But I think overall what I would say is that for me, aesthetic works in whatever medium are sites of complex theorization and, and, and conceptualization, are rich and very inspiring, and I think are often or can be at least ahead of uh, more conventional disciplinary ways of thinking. Um, and so I think of, for example, um, you know, one of the one of the, the the centerpieces of my book, Multidirectional Memory, is this particular massacre that happened in Paris in 1961, October 17th massacre, where uh, Algerians who were peacefully demonstrating as part of the independence struggle, it was in the middle of the Algerian War of Independence, or really toward the end of the Algerian War of Independence, peacefully demonstrating. Uh, uh, Algerians, families even, um, were, were massacred by the police, were rounded up in the thousands, bodies were thrown into the Seine and people drowned, were beaten to death. Anyway, this was a, a, horrific, a horrific massacre that took place right in the middle of Paris. And it took decades before it became an object of historical analysis, where it really became widely recognized, let's say, in the dominant French public culture. And yet from the beginning, there were, you know, both activists and a certain number of artists, photographers, writers who were responding to these events as they were happening and created a kind of, um, you know, somewhat marginal, but still for me, important archive of what had just happened that later would, you know, later would become part of official history. So I think both artists and also activists can sometimes be ahead of the curve in recognizing the importance of certain kinds of events and responding to them. 
and often responding to them in, in complicated ways. At least this is what I've found in my work. I must say it's it's not kind of general in Holocaust studies to to actually use that much of visual uh, material. So, and you are also in your position, you are following a, a great uh, Holocaust historian, Saul Friedlander. So, how do you reflect on? In my eyes, it may it may mean some kind of a change in the in the focus of Holocaust studies and and in the relationship in this kind of hierarchical relationship between history and um, visual art or art history. So, do you? Can you reflect on your own position from this point of view? Yeah, I think I think I, I think I understand. I mean, there's different dimensions to it. Um, I think that Holocaust studies has probably changed or is in the process still of changing in various ways. Um, I think it's true that in the early years, um, the historians dominated the field. Um, and even a somewhat conservative approach to history dominated the field. I think that's, I think one could say that, you know, I think there are some good reasons for that. Um, I think it was important to establish the history first, certainly when I teach the Holocaust, even though I teach a range of different kinds of materials and I usually do it from my base in English or comparative literature. Um, I always start with the history. I mean, I just don't think you can talk about events like this and the Holocaust is not the only one, but when you're talking about histories of violence, especially, you, you need to, you need, students need to know, uh, they need to know the historical background. They have, to, they have to have a kind of narrative and conceptualization of the history before they can go on to other things. So in some ways, I, you know, it's not surprising that, that history was, was in the early stages um, at the core of, of the field. You know, I think Saul Friedlander, um, who is, you know, without a doubt, one of the greatest historians of the Holocaust, was himself always um, a very sophisticated and theoretically inclined historian. And in some ways, this made him different from a lot of the other people in the field. So even in my, you know, earliest, uh, or particularly in my earliest entry into the field of Holocaust studies, in this period when I think, again, historians were very much dominant, Saul Friedlander's work was a complete inspiration for me because it was so sophisticated, because it was actually speaking a language that I, as a, as a literary and cultural critic, understood. He was very influenced or is very, has been very influenced by psychoanalysis, for example, and was writing important essays on trauma and memory, you know, before that was a, a trendy thing to do, let's say, at a time when, when not that many historians were, were, were doing that kind of work. So he was very theoretically inclined. He also, of course, um, hosted the conference and then later edited the book called Probing the Limits of Representation, which was a really important uh, a text in the 1990s for reflecting on the implications of the Holocaust for both artistic and historical representation. So someone like Friedlander was, for me, always one of the most important thinkers um, in the field. You know, I think today there probably are some changes that are taking place. Um, some of it may be disciplinary. There are more of us coming to the topic from outside of history. I, I suppose that's true. I certainly have a lot of colleagues who I've worked with closely over the years who are, like me, literary scholars who are influenced by critical theory and this sort of thing. I think there's 
you know, I think there's also a clear generational change that's taking place. Saul Friedlander was himself a child survivor of these events and has written very powerfully about his, his, his personal experiences and his autobiographical experiences. Obviously, I do not have that kind of direct connection to the events, that kind of immediate experience that someone like him does and other people of that generation. Um, and so I think there is a generational shift that's going on. And I think it's probably natural that those of us who have a different position to the events will also approach it in different ways. Um, I think that we're all committed to some of the same core tenets that earlier generations of Holocaust scholars were, that this is a history that um, needs to be taught, that deserves to be remembered. Um, but I think I'm not alone in thinking that as we move forward, and as the generations change, that we also need to think about new ways of transmitting this knowledge, new ways of transmitting this memory. And for me, at least, that is precisely connected back to this question about comparison that we were having earlier. Um, I just can't see how we can ensure a future for Holocaust memory that doesn't open itself up to other histories, doesn't see itself in relationship to other histories, because people are going to see it that way anyway. So I think it's important for those of us who are invested in the field to, to be there and to be thinking through those questions. And again, to be thinking in terms of an ethics of comparison, to be thinking in terms of transnational connections be between different histories. Um, because if we want this history to be relevant, it has to connect to other histories. If we keep it as this sacred, unique thing, uh, and again, I can understand why for some people it, it's, it, it has to be thought of that way. But I think if it's only that, then we're going to lose the audience that we want to convey this history to, that we want to transmit this memory to. Because there are so many other things happening in a, in a globalized world like the one we're in, so many, so many ways in which we are connected to different histories, um, I just can't see how we can stop those connections from being made. Better to get get into the conversation and, and be thinking about how they can made how they can be made ethically and how we can think of what the the real ethical and political implications of the connections between these different histories are so I'm very committed to the I, I think I am very committed to a comparative approach that maybe in the earlier years of Holocaust studies was was somewhat off limits because there was the need to establish the particularity of the history. And, I, and again, I think that was important at a particular moment. I think we're now in a different moment and we need to think more globally. We need to think more comparatively and relationally and transnationally. The implicated subject concept can be used in, uh, in several different contexts. And one context which is very burning for us here is how to how to use this concept how to work with this concept in in a society which didn't really face the past so to say but uh, the the descendants of perpetrators are still among us so what would you recommend to to us in that respect. It is not only with, with, the, with the, I'm not only thinking of uh, descendants of uh, former, you know, socialist leaders, but also descendants of, uh, of uh, crimes committed during the Second World War. And, and the, the grandsons, granddaughters are still around. I mean, this is a, a version of what I call diachronic implication, right? So again, to, 
go back to what I'd said earlier, you know, I distinguish between a synchronic implication and diachronic implication. How are we implicated in enabling histories of violence that are unfolding in the present, right? That's synchronic, the synchronic side. And of course, that's very important in all societies. But many societies, maybe all societies, also have strong uh, problems or questions around what I call diachronic implication. That is, how are we related historically to some of the important histories of violence that uh, have defined our societies in the past and that continue to echo in the present, that have very real legacies in the present. I think in some ways, for me, one of the important moves that I think is enabling, or at least I hope is enabling, um, is to say that when we're talking about diachronic implication and other forms of implication too, again, we're not talking about criminal guilt. We're talking about political responsibility, right? We're not blaming people for things that they did not do and that they could not have done. We're not blaming them for what their parents or grandparents did. There's no point in that. They're not guilty of what their parents or grandparents did. And yet, I think it's important to recognize that we all inherit responsibility for what came before us, in part because we often benefit from it, right? So that the, the, the crimes that may have been committed before we were born are still ones that, ha- that, that, that render us beneficiaries in the present. Um, and that even if we're not direct beneficiaries in that sense, we are still often, um, you know, we are part of collectives that are defined in relationship to these histories and that we have to, that we bear some responsibility for them, Right. Um, that that be precisely because their legacies live on, right? We're not talking about ancient history. We're not talking about societies that no longer exist, that no one is a direct descendant of. We're talking about relatively recent histories that still echo in the present, that that have afterlives that are still very much with us in all sorts of ways. And so I think, you know, I do think that each situation, each context has to be addressed in its specificity, Right, in its particularity. I don't think there are general rules precisely for how one comes to terms with the past, how one comes to terms with one's implication in the past. Um, I've tried to provide a kind of framework for thinking about this, but I think it's then important to, uh, to think about that framework in the particular situations where it might be relevant. So if you're in a situation where some sort of redress for the present um, seems urgent, where there are forms of injustice that have not been addressed, that have not been redressed, then I think you're in a situation where you need to think about what kinds of restitution or redress are possible and desirable and maybe necessary for the society to move ahead. And I think in those cases, there are, there are times when forms of material reparation are appropriate. You know, my work has been, for example, more about the afterlives of the transatlantic slave trade and, and slavery, and thinking about the fact that even though we're you know 150 years or more from the end of slavery in the United States, the effects are still there, the afterlives are still there, the inequalities that we have today come out of that history. Um, so some form of material reparation is is important, I think. Some form of redistribution, even though the initial victims are no longer here. The initial perpetrators are no longer here, but there are implicated subjects, and there are those who have inherited the burdens of uh, of their ancestors' victimization, right? So 
you have to think about how that might apply to your society. And I don't have the answer to that. I don't know enough about it. So on the one, ho- on the one hand, forms of material restitution can be very important. But I think also there are other forms of redress that are also important, symbolic ones, right? And so that can be in the form of apologies or recognition that crimes have been committed. It can be in the realm of education, right? It's important to teach honestly about these histories and publicly about these histories, and certainly in the realm of commemoration, right? How do we, how do we publicly remember and commemorate uh, these difficult pasts? And they are difficult, and the relations in any society are going to be very contradictory and tangled. Um, I don't think there is any one formula, I suppose. Um, but I think, uh, you know, thinking about the different forms of redress that are possible is important, how they apply to a particular society. And I do think, or at least I hope, that trying to change the conversation from one that is about guilt to one that is about responsibility, I hope can at least be potentially, um, can lead to kind of potential openings, right? As people realize that they are not being personally accused of something that they didn't do, which I think tends to produce defensiveness and resentment. And I think there's a tricky thing. This is one of the reasons why, for me, it was really important to shift the vocabulary from Jaspers's notion of political guilt to one of political responsibility. Because guilt is, at least in English, is an ambiguous term that means both a kind of, you know, criminal, something that happens in a criminal case, but also it's a feeling, it's an emotion, a feeling of guilt. And I actually think, though, people have argued otherwise, and I'm certainly open to, to having a conversation about it. I don't think guilt is a very particularly productive emotion or affect in these contexts. I think it leads to defensiveness and to resentment. And so for me, it's it's important to try to move the conversation outside of a realm that's defined by guilt into a somewhat more open, somewhat looser terrain of responsibility and implication, and maybe start from there and think about what needs to be redressed, what needs to be done in the material realm, in the symbolic realm, in the realm of education and memory, what have you. I don't have easy answers, I'm afraid. I don't think there are easy answers, but I think that's a way to start the conversation. And, and I think that this is exactly what this project to, to remember the victims of, uh, uh, of war, rape against women is trying to do. So maybe my last question to you would be tonight is that how would you imagine extending the implicated subject concept to war rape? I think it's a very important question uh, and a a difficult one, a serious one, Um, but I've thought a bit about it. So sexual violence is not one of the areas that I, that I explore at any length in, um, in the book, The Implicated Subject, but it's one that I've always thought was indeed relevant to the question of implication and implicated subjects. Um, you know, I think the starting point for me would have to be there, as it is with many other forms of violence as well, um, that of course there, you have to recognize, first of all, there are real victims and there are real perpetrators. So in proposing this notion of implicated subjects, I'm in no way trying to say that we do away with these other categories. It's really more about supplementing them and asking what else we need to know to understand how these forms of violence are possible. And I think in the, in the case of sexual violence, while you have of different sorts, right, to start in a general sense, um, 
you have very clear perpetrators, you have very clear victims, but even in the most everyday forms, you also have all sorts of implicated subjects. I, and I've and I have been thinking about this. You have family members and friends and colleagues who enable, make possible forms of sexual violence. I think this has been very clear in a lot of the discussions around Me Too. So for example, you know, the Hollywood mogul who is responsible um, for for rape and 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 harassment and various forms of sexual violence against many, many people, this could only be possible if the assistants and the colleagues were enabling it, or at the very least looking the other way, passively letting this happen. And I think this is true for a lot of forms of sexual violence in this very everyday sense. Now, I think in the context of war, this is equally true, if not more true. Again, what is it, I think we have to ask, what is it that enables and makes possible this sort of phenomena. And as you said at the beginning, this is a transnational phenomena. It's practically a universal aspect of war, as far as I know, and I'm not an expert. It's certainly very widespread. So what is it that makes it possible? I think we want to say it's not something in human nature, but it's in the social structures that we live in, structures of patriarchy, structures of nationalism, structures of militarism, structures of racism, now, in all of those structures, patriarchy, militarism, racism, etc., of course you have people who you could identify as perpetrators, right, who are directly responsible, again, for forms of racist violence, for forms of sexist violence, for, uh, for, um, you know, for running the military, for, you know, for who, who bear direct responsibility for war crimes and this sort of thing. But it seems to me that all of those structures, they are deep ideologies in, in many of our societies, and they are enabled and propped up by a lot of people who themselves would never commit these acts, right? In other words, most people are not going to commit wartime rape, and yet they are part of and enable the very structures that make that kind of rape possible. So patriarchal structures, nationalist structures, racist structures. And so I think um, if we want to address those histories, um, certainly if we want to try to prevent them in the future, however that, that might be possible, one of the things we have to address is not only the soldiers or whoever who are, who are performing these acts in the, in the most immediate way, but again, the social systems that make them possible, that enable them, that even reward people for taking part in these kinds of, of behavior. So I think it's about so bringing, a, bringing the questions of implication and the implicated subject into this arena, to me, is again about broadening the responsibility so that you can't simply scapegoat the soldiers who took part in these horrific acts. Of course, they bear a direct responsibility but they don't bear a sole responsibility. We need to think about the politicians who encourage them, you know, the, the masses who go along with these ideologies, who celebrate these racist ideologies or these nationalist ideologies, these sexist ideologies. Um, I think thinking in terms of implicated subjects is a way of, again, yeah, broadening the field, broadening a sense of who is involved in these acts and going beyond the battlefield itself, right, and the limited terrain on which uh, wartime rape unfolds and say this is really a larger social problem. Uh, and, and so many of society's interlocking structures play a role in enabling um, and perpetuating this kind of violence, right, in making it possible again in the future. 
right? Because it is not, because people are not held accountable, et cetera. And I think that's probably also where your project comes in, obviously, in questions of commemoration and the need to, to mark these forms of violence and to confront them publicly so that they don't simply happen again, so that, so that there isn't a sense of impunity around them. Michael, thank you very much for your generous answers and uh, also, again, to accept our invitation. So Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.